Well, hello there. Please step inside. Pull up a stool. What type of spirit are you in the mood for? Ah, what a fine choice. Would you like that poured over ice? Or how about skulls? Welcome to the Creepy Speakeasy, where we talk about all things spooky and mysterious. So settle in, grab a drink, and join us as we dive into today's topic. Hello everyone, here we are again, episode 2. How you doing today, Zach? I'm good, you know, except for the stuff falling from the sky. It's a winter wonderland. Oh yeah, so wonderful! My fucking back hurts. Alright, anyways, today we will, we will be covering the infamous Enfield haunting. We will be discussing the real story, not a crazy nun demon named Valak like in the movie. Even though I love that movie, it is very loosely based on the story. And if you know anything about demonology, the demon Valak is not a creepy nun at all, but a demon resembling a baby who rides a three-headed dragon and controls a legion of other demons. How do you feel about that, Zach? That's the stuff of nightmares. It's a sweet, sweet dream. This is the true story. The rasping male voice sent a chill through the room. Hauntingly, it delivered a message from beyond the grave, describing in graphic detail the moment of death. The voice said, Just before I died, I went blind, and then I had a brain hemorrhage, fell asleep, and died in the chair in the corner downstairs. The eerie voice, which can still be heard on audio tapes today, is reportedly that of Bill Wilkins. The recording was made in Enfield, North London in the 70s, several years after his death. The most horrifying of all, however, was that the voice was coming from the body of an 11-year-old girl, Janet Hodgson. She appeared to be possessed. 
This was the case of the Enfield Poltergeist, which held the nation spellbound 30 years ago, puzzling policemen, psychics, and other people who experienced the activity. It involved levitation, furniture being moved through the air, and flying objects swirling towards witnesses. There were cold breezes, physical assaults, graffiti, water appearing on the floor, and even claims of matches spontaneously bursting into flame. A policewoman even signed a police report that she had seen a chair move. There were more than 30, 30 witnesses to the strange incidents. Notably, the young girl at the center of the event seemingly acted as a mouthpiece for Bill Wilkins, a foul-mouthed, grumpy old man who had died in the house many years before. His son contacted investigators to claim the details of his story. The events unfolded for more than a year behind the door of an ordinary-looking, semi-detached council home on a suburban street filled with similar houses and left those they touched permanently scarred. Naturally, many questioned whether it was a hoax, but no explanation other than the paranormal has ever been convincingly put forward. The story of the Hodgson family told it. It begins in 1977. Peggy was unusual at the time. She was a single mother to four children, Margaret 12, Janet 11, Johnny 10, and Billy 7, after having to split from their father. It was the evening of August 30th, 1977, and Miss Hodgson was keen to get her children into bed. She heard Janet complaining from upstairs that her and her brother's beds were wobbling. Miss Hodgson told her daughter to stop fooling around. The following evening, however, there was an altogether more bizarre disturbance. Miss Hodgson heard a crash from upstairs. Pissed, she went to tell her children to settle down. Entering their bedroom, Miss Hodgson saw the chest of drawers move. She pushed it back but found that it was being propelled towards the door by an invisible force. It seemed as if some supernatural presence was trying to trap the family in the room with the heavy oak chest. Many years later, Janet would tell a TV documentary, it started in a back room, the chest of drawers moved, and you could hear shuffling. Mom said, I want you to go to bed. We told her what was going on and she came to see it for herself. She saw the chest of drawers moving. When she tried to push it back, she couldn't. Janet's sister Margaret explained how the activity increased from there. There were strange little noises in the house. We couldn't make out what was going on. None of us got sleep. We put on our dressing gowns and slippers and went next door. The family went to get help from their neighbors, Vic and Peggy. Vic, a burly builder, went to investigate. He says, I went in there and I couldn't make out these noises. There was a knocking on the wall in the bedroom and on the ceiling. I was beginning to be a bit afraid. Margaret added, Vic said, I don't know what to do. I've never seen a big man like that so scared. Peggy called the police, who proved to be mystified. One of the officers, Carolyn Heave, saw a chair move. She said at the time, a large armchair moved unassisted four feet across the floor. She inspected the chair for hidden wires, but could not find an explanation for what she had seen. Eventually, the officers left, telling the family that the incidents were not a police matter, as they couldn't find anyone breaking the law. Next, Peggy contacted the press. Daily Mirror photographer Graham Morris, who visited the house, says, It was chaos. Things started flying around. People were screaming. 
Some of the events were captured on camera and the images were disturbing. One shows Janet appearingly being thrown across the room. In other photos, her face is distorted in pain. The BBC went to the house, but the crew found the metal components in their tape equipment had been twisted and recordings erased. Next, the family sought help from the Society for Psychological Research, or the SPR. It sent investigators Maurice Gross and Guy Leon Playfair, a poltergeist expert who subsequently wrote a book, This House is Haunted, about the affair. I personally know someone who talked to Guy before his passing. Our good friend, Paul Bestel, from the podcast Mysteries and Monsters, who will be appearing as a guest star on an upcoming podcast about Australian Bigfoots, also known as Yowies. If you want another great podcast to listen to, go check him out. Okay, anyways, back to the story. The author, Will Storr, spoke to Gross, who has since died. When researching his own book, Will Storr vs. The Supernatural, which also features this case, Gross told him, as soon as I got there, I realized that the case was real because the family was in a bad state. Everybody was in chaos. When I first got there, nothing happened for a while. Then I experienced Legos and marbles flying across the room. The extraordinary thing was, when you picked them up, they were hot. Gross said he was standing in the kitchen and a t-shirt leapt off the table and flew into the other side of the room while I was standing by it. The investigators found themselves caught in a maelstrom of apparent psychic activity, which every poltergeist trick thrown at them. Sofas levitated, furniture spun around and was slung across the room, and the family would be hurled out of their beds at night. One day, Maurice and a visiting neighbor found one of the children shouting, I can't move! It's holding my leg! They had to wrestle the child from what all involved insisted was the grip of invisible hands. The ongoing knocking was one of the most chilling aspects of the case. It would run down the wall, fading in and out as it played an unnerving game with the family, who became so scared that they slept in the same room with the light on. Most of the activity centered around 11-year-old Janet. She went into violent trances that were awful to behold. On one occasion, the iron fireplace cover in her bedroom was wrenched from the wall by unseen forces. Family members also claimed to have seen her levitating, floating clean across the room, and even famed demonologists and paranormal researchers Ed and Lorraine Warren did visit the house in 1978, even though the events differ from the events in Conjuring 2. They were there for about a day. Gross was not happy with Ed Warren most of the time as Ed would make up activity. He would often say that multiple events were demonic in nature, blowing things out of proportion, and saying that a lot of money could be made from the case. Probably not one of Ed's most proudest moments. She told Channel 4, I felt used by a force that nobody understands. I really don't like to think about it much. I'm not sure the poltergeist was truly evil. It was almost as if it wanted to be part of the family. It didn't want to hurt us. It had died there and wanted to be there to rest. The only way I could communicate was through me and my sister. Some cast doubt on the events. However, two SPR experts caught the children bending spoons themselves and questioned why no one was allowed in the same room as Janet when she was using her gruff voice. Apparently, that was Bill Wilkins. Indeed, Janet admitted that they fabricated some of the occurrences. 
She told ITV News in 1980, Oh yeah, once or twice we fake phenomenon just to see if Mr. Gross and Mr. Playfair would catch us. They always did. Janet now lives in Essex with her husband, a retired milkman. She told reporters, I wasn't very happy to hear about the film. I didn't know anything about it. My dad had just died. And it really upset me to think that all this being brought up again. She described the poltergeist as being very traumatic. It was an extraordinary case. It's one of the most recognized cases of paranormal activity in the world. But for me, it was quite daunting. I think it really left its mark. The activities, the news attention, the different people in and out of the house. It wasn't a normal childhood. Channel 4 asked how much of the phenomenon at Green Street was faked. She said, I'd say about 2%. She also admitted playing to, with a Ouija board with her sister just before activity flared up in the house. She says she was unaware that she went into trances until she was shown pictures. I recall being very distressed by the photos when I was a child. I was very upset. I knew when the voices were happening, of course. It felt like something was behind me all the time. They did all sorts of tests, filling my mouth with water and so on, but the voices still came out. She says, it was hard. I had a short stay at a mental hospital in London where they stuck electrodes on my head, but the tests proved normal. The levitation was scary because you didn't know where you're going to land. I remember a curtain being wrapped around my neck. I was screaming. I thought I was going to die. My mom had to use all her strength to rip it away. The man who spoke through me, Bill, seemed angry because we were in his house. The situation had a huge effect on my family. Janet says, I was bullied at school. They called me the ghost girl and put bugs down my back. I dreaded going home. The front door would open. There'd be people in and out. You didn't know what to expect. And I used to be worried about mom a lot. She had a nervous breakdown in the end. Janet said, I don't want to live in the past. I want to move on, but I have flashbacks. I think, why did it happen to us? Her brother was called Freak Boy from the ghost house and people would spit on him. Janet herself was on the front page of the Daily Star with a headline, Possessed by the Devil. She left home at 16 and married young. I lost touch with everything, all the coverage of the case in paranormal books. My mom felt people walked over her at that time. She felt exploited. Shortly after the press attention drifted away, Janet's younger brother Johnny died of cancer at the age of 14. Janet's mother then developed breast cancer, dying in 2003, and Janet suffered the loss of her son in his sleep when he was only 18. She denied the whole story was faked in pursuit of fame or money. I didn't want to bring it up again while mom was alive, but now I want to tell the story. I don't care whether people believe me or not. I went through this and it was true. Janet was asked whether she believed the house is still haunted. She says, years later when mom was still alive, there was always a presence there, something watching over you. As long as people don't meddle the way we did with the Ouija boards, it should stay quiet. It is a lot calmer than when I was a child. It is at rest, but will always be there. Janet reports that it was a priest's visit to Green Street that resulted in the incident's quote-unquote calming down in autumn 1978. Although the occurrences did not stop entirely, her mother continued to hear voices in the house. Janet said, even my brother, until the day he left the place after mom died, would say, there's still something there. You feel like you're being watched. Janet continues to believe in the poltergeist, saying, 
It lived off me, off my energy. Call me mad if you like. Those events did happen. The poltergeist was with me, and I feel that in a sense it always will be. So who lives at 284 Green Street now? After Peggy died, Claire Bennett and her four sons moved into the house. Claire said, I didn't see anything, but I felt uncomfortable. There was definitely some kind of presence in the house. I always felt like there was something looking at me. Her sons would wake up in the middle of the night, hearing people talking downstairs. Claire then found out about the house's history. Suddenly, it all made sense. She says, they moved out after two months. One of her sons said, the night before we moved out, I woke up and saw a man coming into the room. I ran into mom's room and said, we've got to move, and we did the next day. The house is currently occupied by another family who did not wish to be identified. The mother simply says, I've got children. They don't know about it. I don't want to scare them. Though skeptics try to rip apart the tales, the story of the Enfield poltergeist was clearly lost none of its frightening power. There you go, folks. That is the story. The true story. Not the heroic Warrens fighting off a demon nun. But the story of a tortured family and the accounts of Janet as she looked back on something she probably will never forget. What do you think? Is it true or fabricated? What do you think, Zach? I mean, I think it's true. That's, this stuff's out there. Like, you can't just be like, Who, whose mind just comes up with, oh yeah, this happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and everyone always says, you know, they, uh, they went to the press to try to get better housing to get out of that neighborhood because everything was broken in the house, the washer didn't work, the sink was leaking, roof was leaking, all that stuff, but um, they lived in the house. Uh, Janet's mother lived in the house till she died. Her brother stayed there with her. Um, Janet only left because she just couldn't take it anymore, you know? So, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's true. Um, I don't have any reason to not think it's true. I just want people to understand that the story as it's told in The Conjuring 2 is not even remotely what happened. I mean, pieces of it, yes. The dresser going against the door and the fireplace thing flying off the wall. But the whole, like, the creepy man with the long arms walking around. And uh, uh, the demon nun that didn't happen and the warrens did not play a big role in it i have respect for the warrens they did a lot of good things but in this case they saw it as a money ploy so i mean like yeah, like i said that stuff this stuff's out there this stuff happens yeah not probably to this extent but it happens poltergeists usually happen um from what i understand around um, young teens going through puberty, either male or female. Um, oh, that's interesting. They say that the hormones and the changes in the body is there's so much going on that it's actually the person that's going through it is unknowingly projecting that energy and causing these things to happen. So that's, that's why my mom used to spank me when I was going through puberty. We're not going to talk about why your mom used to spank you, Zach. That's not. This is not that type of co podcast, my friend. Oh, maybe another one. Yeah, maybe another one. 
So, Tony, where can the people find us on the interwebs? Well, Zach, you can find us by searching creepy underscore speakeasy on Instagram. Please rate and review us on platforms that allow you to do so. If you want to support the podcast, you can do that through our anchor.fm page by searching The Creepy Speakeasy. Follow us on Instagram to keep up to date with when episodes will be coming out. Also, if you have a story of your own, please feel free to email us at thecreepyspeakeasy at gmail.com. If we have enough stories, we will be completely willing to do a listener story episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next one. Have a great day.